mommy can help you, okay? Music practice has its highs and lows. Hold it for you. Sometimes we reach a state of bliss and flow as we find the perfect balance of competence, challenge, and creativity with our instrument. Or sometimes we can feel like Sisyphus, over and over, pushing up a hill, a huge grand piano or something. Mastery requires effort, and I haven't met anyone for whom consistent and productive practice is easy. Now, let's add family relationships into the mix. Parents fantasize about their child running gleefully to the practice room without being reminded and falling into this state of blissful and productive flow. Occasionally this happens, or happens for a time, but all families, all musicians go through rough patches when it is a struggle just to pick up the instrument and start to play. Brittany Gardner has been a student, teacher, and parent. <laughs> Practicing can be hard. Yes, that's true. Through her story, and with insights from education thought leader and New York Times bestselling author Jessica Leahy, I'm lucky enough that I get to write about what I love the most, which is education and child welfare. We will explore healthy learning relationships, the importance of words we choose to praise, and how to create an environment in which students feel ownership of their music. You're listening to Building Noble Hearts, a production of the Suzuki Association of the Americas. I'm Margaret Watts-Romney. Here, we take a look at the learning environments in which children, parents, and teachers gain new knowledge and are encouraged to become fine individuals. Throughout this season, we're speaking with people whose lives have intersected the work of humanitarian violinist Shinichi Suzuki, and we're finding themes of good teaching everywhere. Themes like effort, praise, and internal motivation. When Brittany Gardner was young, music was part of the air her family breathed. My parents were both trained as music educators and taught music in the public schools actually together for a while. Music in my home growing up was just part of the fabric of our lives. It was just what you did in our family and it was just part of who you were. Though music was all around, it wasn't always easy. Um, but I do remember my, I remember my sister telling me about a time that she got so mad at my mom that she threw her piano books across the room at her. <laughs> so that happened. I re can remember very vividly when I was um, in Suzuki Cello Book 4 and learning tenor clef. And my dad helped me learn it. But I just remember like crying and crying and crying because it was so frustrating. But he just stuck with me. And my dad was really cool. He's not an emotional kind of guy. He's friendly and fun and really happy. But he did not get uh, affected by my tantrums. And so he'd just be like, I know you can do this. Try again. That's not the right note. Try again. So he stayed connected with you. Yeah, he did. He, he sat with me and we pushed through that. And as important as music is to everything we talk about here, I have to allow that Brittany's prevailing memory is not about music. I don't remember any notes he taught me. I don't remember any pieces he taught me. But you know what I do remember? I remember being with my dad. I remember my dad, like, wearing his pajamas, and I'm wearing my pajamas, and he brought his clarinet out, and I was playing my cello, and we were just, like, playing music together. And I remember being like, my dad thinks I'm important enough that he's spending his time with me. 
struggle, connection, these are some of the elements in the recipe for successful self-practicers, students who are inspired to find the drive within themselves to strive and learn. But let's take a moment to examine where a student's motivation comes from. Is it from an external stimulus or from a source within? To find out more about students and their learning environment, I spoke with educator and New York Times bestselling author Jessica Leahy from her home in New Hampshire. You know, I've been a teacher for 20 years, um, almost 20 years, and I've taught every grade from sixth grade to 12th grade, English and Latin and writing, and I currently teach drug and alcohol addicted kids in an inpatient rehab setting. Over the years, Jess has made a close study of her students, and one day she had a startling realization. I heard from a student that she wrote a paper for me about the fact that her obsession with perfection, with being perfect, appearing perfect, um, uh, all of that, her obsession with grades and points and scores as evidence of her perfection, uh, all of that had rendered her incapable of enjoying learning anymore, that that was beside the point for her. And, and for me, that was devastating because I had taught her for three years. I had I had taught her and I was at her advisor. I mean, I knew this kid really well and this is a kid who loved to learn. And somehow we've beaten that out of her over three years. And and that was devastating to, for me. And then that same day that I read that paper, I came home and I found out that my younger son, who's now 14, but was then nine, was incapable of tying his own shoes. And I didn't know that because he hadn't, he didn't want anyone to know. He was so ashamed of it. And I had done that because I had been tying his shoes for him. And, you know, I had just made all sorts of excuses for why it was faster, easier, whatever for me to do this sort of stuff. And that tying of the shoes, his inability to tie shoes was this sudden moment of, oh my gosh, now I'm thinking about all the other things that he is incapable of doing because of me, because I have been, you know, doing that stuff for him. So as much as I wanted to look down on the parents of my students and be angry at the parents of my students, I couldn't because I was just like them. Jess was more focused on the outcome of her son having tied shoes than she was with the process of letting him learn to tie his own shoes. Her student was caught up with the expectation of perfection more than the process of education. Realizing this, Jess took a hard look at her own parenting, read a lot of studies about education, and wrote a book about it, The Gift of Failure. One discovery? Children who can motivate themselves, who are internally motivated, are more likely to become lifelong learners. Conversely, students who are motivated externally by sources outside of themselves often leave their discipline as soon as the motivation is removed. Well, and I think it's really important to talk about the fact that extrinsic motivators take on, a, they look like a lot of different things. And we tend to just think about them as paying kids for grades or, or sticker charts or, you know, giving kids, you know, a lollipop for in exchange for something. Extrinsic motivators actually can work great in a couple of limited contexts. And they can work great for, you know, a one-off, trying to get a kid to do something one time just to sort of boost initial motivation. Extrinsic motivators can be those simple things like, you know, carrot and stick stuff, but you have to also think larger. Extrinsic motivators are any kind of control you put over people. I'm going to check the portal 
um, and look at your grades constantly, that's called surveillance. That's an extrinsic motivator. If you're going to track your kids on their phone, that's also surveillance. That's an extrinsic motivator. And while I'm not saying we can't do these things or shouldn't do these things, I am saying we need to think about them as extrinsic motivators and realize that doing any of those things, positive or negative sort of extrinsic motivators, all undermine um, creativity and and um, intrinsic motivation. So 40 years of research, including meta studies, studies about the studies, the 40 years of research, are really clear that if you want kids to do something that requires long-term focus and creativity, that extrinsic motivators are terrible. They undermine both of those things. So, if intrinsic motivation is what we're after, how do we help our children build that? The intrinsic motivation thing is based on three things, the autonomy, the competence, and the connection. And the connection stuff is about talking more about process than product. Which are exactly the elements in the room when Brittany was struggling to learn tenor clef with her dad. So, let's take a look at that moment of struggle. As parents, we are hardwired to want to keep our children out of pain and fear. So when we see our children's faces filled with concern, worry, or stress, our loving impulse is to snatch them away from the situation that is causing the stress. But these are the exact moments when the deepest learning can happen. Jess needed to let her nine-year-old struggle to learn to tie his shoes, however much time it took, or however imperfectly he did it. Brittany's parents stayed in connection but allowed her to struggle as she learned tenor clef. Our brains work best when there is work, struggle, and effort, but what language we use to encourage kids to learn, which actions we praise, can also make a huge difference. The reality is, is that when we praise kids for their sort of, you're so smart, you're so talented, you're so creative, you just fell out of the womb that way, blah, 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 a couple of things happen. We get kids who are become incredibly protective of that label of smart, and they will do anything to protect it, including um, cheat more. Uh, James M. Lang in his book, Cheating Lessons, says, if you want to create a classroom full of cheaters, just keep praising them for how smart they are. Um, it undermines, again, creativity, and it, it you create kids that ask for help less because they don't want to appear that they don't know what they're doing. Um, they will lie about their scores. They will also as Carol Dweck's research shows, um, take more pleasure in other people's failures. I mean, I think the, the message around praise is this, that we really need to praise kids for their effort through the process, that we need to emphasize the process over the product. Praising things like, you know, last night while you were doing your homework, I took a peek in the room and I saw that it was a little frustrating for you. And I'm just really proud of you for sticking with it when it was hard. Acknowledging the struggle is crucial. And Jess also outlined the elements that create the blissful state of flow. Flow is what we reach for in our studies, in sports, and with our instruments. And she says it's not easy, but can be simple to create when you have the right ingredients. I love to refer to Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's flow because that, you know, that's like the, the apex state of intrinsic motivation. When you're doing something for the sake of the thing itself and time and space falls away and it's just you and the activity, whether that's, you know, playing cello for you or cross country skiing or whatever it is, um, where you look up and you realize, oh my gosh, three hours have gone by and I don't even know where it went. Um, that place doesn't happen, um, without three things, 
autonomy, which is kind of like independence, but it really has more to do with giving people control over the details of a task. Competence, which unfortunately is not the same thing as confidence, which confidence is, is sort of a, an optimism, but competence is, is confidence based on actual experience and connection. Competence, connection, and autonomy. All three were baked into Brittany Gardner's experience as a child. Musical competence was gained from a young start of music education being a part of her family's life. She had connection with her parents as they supported her studies and stayed with her through her struggles and triumphs. Then, she and her siblings all experienced autonomy as they reached their teen years and their parents supported them as they chose their own life paths. So of the three of us, I'm the only one who does music as my profession. It was very clear as we hit our like early teenage years, it became very clear um, where our interests and our paths were. My sister was also involved in classical ballet, and she always wanted to be a physical therapist. My brother played every sport under the sun. He works in business. I really respect my parents a lot for being wise enough to kind of step back and let their children's personalities and interests emerge. So Brittany got a couple of college degrees in music, became a professional musician, started teaching, and then learned even more lessons about competence, connection, and autonomy when she had her own students and her own children. Oh, you know when you're a teacher and you ask your student to do something five times and they do something five times and then you move on to the next thing and you say, try this five times and they do it and they're so cooperative. <laughs> yeah. Then I go home and I'm like, okay, my child, let's do this exercise five times and she starts crying for no reason. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm sorry, what? And she's like, I don't want to. Uh, what? <laughs> I've never had a student break down in tears and yell at me that they don't want to, you know? <laughs> that seems like it was a regular occurrence in practicing. <laughs> but it just, I mean, it just comes down to the parent is the limit which the child is testing. You know, and so the teacher is the instructor, and, and but the child tests the parents in a way they don't test the teacher generally. Brittany's adventures in parent practicing started when her daughters were young. She chose to immerse them in a music environment just as her parents had done for her. So my violinist started when she was three, and um, whatever was done in the lesson, we did at home. And because my daughter was only three and in preschool twice a week for a couple of hours, we had time. And I'll tell you, I think one of the beautiful things of starting a child very young. I don't think that you have to start a child young in music lessons for them to be successful. I personally didn't touch a cello until I was eight years old. And so I feel like a quote unquote late beginner in the Suzuki world. <laughs> Side note. If you're a new listener or new to Suzuki teaching and these ages sound incredibly young to you, go back to our season one episode called Skills I Didn't Know My Child Had. Okay, back to Brittany. For me as a parent, it really was helpful to start my child really young and be like, we have all this time. Um, time to let things sink in. Time to um, practice without feeling rushed. Wow, I think back on those days and I think, they were exhausting. It took a lot of energy, but giving them a strong foundation early to provide later confidence was her plan. 
Also, she understood her daughters in a new way from working with them intensively with music education. For me, the one-on-one -on -one time with my child every day where we can really practice our relationship is why I stick with it. And then this really cool side benefit that then they play beautiful music, you know? She also learned to choose her words of praise or correction carefully as she watched her daughter's violin teacher. She avoided the broad praise terms of smart and talented, but she also learned to choose her corrective words carefully. Instead of calling a missed note a mistake, she learned to say, Oh, this is a surprise! Instead of like, you were wrong, you didn't know. It's like, oh, isn't that interesting, you know? Oh, we found something. And then um, she used a favorite phrase from my daughter's first violin teacher. That's something that will help us grow. <laughs> it's been really helpful to realize that, like, um, growth comes from struggle. And you have to validate that struggle and not dismiss it. You know, the struggle is part of the growth. And are you going to get afraid by it or mad at it? Or, or are you going to take your child by the hand and like walk through it together? When her children were very young, she did take them by the hand and walked them through their struggles to achieve their family goal of music fluency. Now, as they're on the brink of teenhood, she sees the importance of allowing space for their own autonomy and also sees her own process of letting go. But I've really handed off a lot of the quantitative autonomy to my children. I am working towards doing a better job of handing off the autonomy for qualitative work to my children. It's really easy for me as a string player who has string playing children <laughs> to say, I know that note's out of tune. Let me tell you that it's out of tune. Let me tell you how to fix it. Let's do it. Sometimes I'll put myself in it and that's, uh, that's not the best. I'm, I'm practicing on doing better. But a lot, I will try to depend it on the teacher and go back to them as the expert, as the mentor, as the one who really knows so that it doesn't become me against my child. I gotta not be the expert here. This letting go by parents is exactly what we need to do at some point in their development to help kids grow into their self-reliance. And in a series of studies done by this woman, Wendy Grolnick, she found that parents who support kids' autonomy, who support kids in their efforts to do tasks the way they want to do them, how they want to do them, those kids are more able to get frustrated and to complete tasks on their own when their parents are not present. Though Brittany started her daughters at a young age, she told me that she saw many students being successful in music, even if they started later. I asked her, what were the most important elements to music education? Two things come clearly to my mind. Number one, consistency, and number two, attitude. And she gave me an example. But it makes me think of the opportunity I had to travel to Japan this past August. I went there with my family. And I remember going to this garden and everything was just manicured immaculately. And I looked over and I saw the gardener there and he was using these super tiny like shears on a bush. And they were so tiny and the cuts he was making were so tiny, just like minuscule. And I thought to myself, do you even need to do that trimming right now? Clearly no one's gonna notice if you didn't do that today, you know? 
around the whole ground, everything is exactly in place. Well, then I came back to my home in the United States, and on my street that day, there was this giant truck that was hacking down a tree that had completely died because it hadn't been attended to regularly. (laughs) And I just thought, well, there it is. This consistency... This calm attitude of continual progress is perhaps what Dr. Shinichi Suzuki was pointing to when he said, do not hurry. If you hurry and collapse or tumble down, nothing is achieved. Do not rest in your efforts. Without stopping, without haste, carefully taking a step at a time forward will surely get you there. Students have a chance to be internally motivated learners, consistently and creatively pursuing their own education. Parents and educators can support this by aiming to cultivate confidence, praising the process, allowing autonomy, and staying in connection. A kid who can get frustrated, who you know has the emotional wherewithal to redirect, read the instructions again, say, oh, you know, feel, have that sort of innate sense of competence, like, okay, no, I, I can, fig- I can do this. I can figure this out for my own. That kid is more teachable. Staying in connection with them, supporting them, hopefully empowering them, and then saying, you can find a way. You can do it. Do you have an influential educator in your community like Brittany or Jess that you would like to recognize? Spencer Baldwin, Celia Chan Valiero, and Sammy Young are some of the people who recently had stars named in their honor on the Giving Galaxy of Stars on the Suzuki Association of the Americas website. Go to suzukiassociation.org to dedicate a star, and we may acknowledge them here on the podcast as well. Want more people to hear about building noble hearts? Share this episode on social media or give us a rating and review on iTunes. Every review helps the podcast be seen by more people. Have music to share? We love using music from our community on the podcast. Write to podcasts at suzukiassociation.org if you would like to submit your recordings for consideration. Sun Up is composed by Stephen Katz and Derek Snyder and performed by the Snyder Cello Army. Prelude and Fugue from the Well-Tempered Clavier in F Major by J.S. Bach was arranged by Nicholas Kitchen and played by the Baromero String Quartet. Tuck and Point, Borrow, and Caprese are by Blue Dot Sessions and can be found at www.sessions.blue. Prelude in G Major, Opus 32, Number 5 by Rachmaninoff was played by Grant Moffat. You can find links on our website to all music selections. Methuselah Podcast Productions gives masterful support to our scripts and production. Thank you for joining us in building noble hearts, and we will see you next time.